Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. I'll be reading from the middle of verse 23 through verse 43. Uh, Acts 10, picking up in verse 23. This is the third scene in a larger narrative that tells the story of God's prompting, prodding the apostles to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles as Gentiles. That is, without requiring them to become Jews or to submit to the Jewish ceremonial laws. Now, in the opening scene a couple of weeks ago, God sent an angel to Cornelius, a devout, God-fearing centurion stationed at Caesarea, to tell him to send for Peter, who was staying at the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa. In the second scene, God gave Peter a vision of a great sheet filled with all manner of unclean animals, and then commanded him to kill and eat, something Peter was unwilling to do. But each time Peter refused, God said, God said to him, Do not call unclean anything that I have made clean. It was as Peter was pondering the meaning of this vision that Cornelius' servants arrived. And as if to ensure that Peter didn't miss the point, God said to him, Go with these men without hesitation, for I have sent them. And that's exactly what Peter did. He invited them to spend the night with him at Simon's house, and then the next morning traveled back with them to Cornelius' house. And that's where we're picking up the story this morning. We'll be giving our attention to the message Peter proclaims to Cornelius and those with him when he arrives at his house. But as we come to listen to God's word, let's pray for God's help that we might understand what he says to us. Let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord of all creation. You spoke in the beginning, and all things came to be. You spoke, and your word came to live with us, full of grace and truth. Bless this place where we would now hear your voice. Bless this place where we would hear your story. As we listen, may our ears be tuned to your voice. As the word is spoken, may you speak to us by your Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Acts 10, picking up in verse 23b. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa. And asked for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. 
So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that whoever believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you can come up and join me. Hi, welcome. Come on up. All right. You might hear this from your parents, uh, but whenever we get invited over to someone's house for supper, what do we usually ask the person who invited us? Do you know? We usually ask, can I bring something? Yeah. I, I mean, it's a nice thing to ask, right? Offering to bring over some bread or a salad to contribute to the meal is just polite uh, because we understand that having people over for supper, it's a bit of extra work. And we're trying to make that work a little easier by doing part of it ourselves. So, so when I ask somebody, when they invite me over for supper and I ask, can I bring anything? And the person says, no, just bring yourself. Then suddenly I feel kind of weird. And so I offer again, are you sure? Can I bring some dessert? And, and when they say, no, we've got everything covered, just come. Well, then that weird feeling gets a little bit stronger. Uh, but at some point, I just have to give in. I just have to say, okay, I'll be there empty-handed. But stop and think for a minute about why it might feel weird about not adding something to the meal. Sure, we offer to bring something because it helps the host, but if we really stop and think about it, offering to bring dessert maybe also makes us feel a little bit less of a burden to those people. It, it feels like the bread that we bring helps us belong at the table. Uh, since we helped with the meal, it feels like we belong there. But really, what does the host want? Does the host want the bread that you bring? Do they want the brownies that you might bring? Well, I might want your brownies, Bryn. But they invited us because they wanted to be with us, right? And it's like that with God, too. In the Bible, we hear him inviting people, come to me. Come to me so that you can live. He, he even invites us knowing that the only thing that we have, the only thing that you and I could possibly bring to God's table is our sin. And he, he doesn't need our sin. He doesn't want that. 
But still, he invites us to come to him, to come and eat with him. And he even made a way for us to come. Do you remember last week when we talked about being dressed properly for a wedding? Well, when we come to God through Jesus, when we admit that we don't have anything good to bring to him, but we trust that Jesus covers our sin and everything else, then God welcomes us to his table to even live with him and enjoy him. It's like he's saying, hey, look, don't just come to supper with me. Come live with me. I love you, and I sent Jesus to take care of everything. Because he died, your sins won't keep us apart now. If you come with Jesus, then you're dressed and ready for my party. Just come. Just bring yourself. And we still feel weird about that sometimes. We really want to bring something to God, something that makes us feel like we belong with him. But he's always saying to us, no, just bring yourself, empty hands and everything. Jesus has everything covered. Just come. And that's why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, you can go back to your seat. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. As Sam said, this is the third scene uh, in a larger narrative here in Acts chapter 10 and 11, a narrative that tells the story of God prodding the apostles to, to take the gospel beyond uh, Jerusalem and Judea and to, to take it into the nations, but specifically to take it to the nations, to take it to the Gentiles as Gentiles, to, to take it to the Gentiles without requiring them to become Jews, without requiring them to submit to the Jewish ceremonial laws. We are told that it was with this prompting from God that Peter consented to go with Cornelius uh, and or go with Cornelius' servants back to Cornelius' home in Caesarea. And when he arrives there, he meets not only Cornelius, but a large group of his relatives and close friends. He, he, Cornelius has gathered together many of his associates because he is expecting to hear from him a word from God. And he wants not only to hear it himself, but he wants his, his family and his household to hear it. And so this is the, the context that we are in. Peter is at Cornelius' house, and Cornelius is there gathered with his, his friends and his, his family, ready to hear the message that Peter has for him from God. But notice how Peter begins. Notice how he introduces himself. After telling Cornelius not to worship him because he is merely a messenger from God and not God himself, he, he opens his mouth and he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. It's a bit tactless, isn't it? I mean, basically, Peter is saying, you, you know I'm not supposed to be here. <laughs> you, you know that I, as a, as a good Jew, do not normally associate with people like you. You know that I wouldn't normally have accepted your invitation. It's not exactly the, the way that we uh, normally greet someone who has invited us into their home, and yet it's what Peter says. 
And he says it because he's still a little bit in shock. He still is is surprised that God has, has sent him here. But he is driving home the point that he is only here because God told him to come. He is only here because God told him that he was to go with Cornelius' servants back to his home. He, he is only here because God told him not to call any person common or unclean. That's the, the point that, that Peter wants to make. He says, listen, I'm here, uh, but, but, I'm, but I'm here only because, because God explicitly told me to come. And Cornelius is a bit more respectful, but he makes much the same point in his response. He makes it clear that that he only sent for Peter because God told him to. He says, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, and then told him to send to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. God told Cornelius to send for Peter, and, and Peter only accepted Cornelius' invitation because God told him to. In other words, the, the, the narrative makes a beyond clear that this whole thing is God's doing. God is directing the scene. God is, is orchestrating these events. The, the meeting between Peter and Cornelius is a divine appointment. And Cornelius is anxious to hear the message that God has for him. Now, therefore, he says, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so it is this message that Peter has been given to deliver to Cornelius that is really at the heart of this entire narrative. God has orchestrated this meeting because he has a message for Peter to Deliver. And it is that message which is going to be our focus this morning. So look again at what Peter says, beginning there in verse, um, let's see here, I'm on the wrong page. Beginning there in verse 34. We're told, so that Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. So so here is Peter's first point. This is is, uh, his his opening salvo. Peter wants uh, Cornelius to know, and and really is is speaking as much to himself as he is to to Cornelius, that that God shows no partiality. So so what does that mean? What does it it mean to say that, that God shows no partiality? What does it mean to say that God doesn't play favorites? Well, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have standards. It doesn't mean that God is not discerning, that he, that he does not in some way execute judgment. All right? that, that's not what Peter is, is getting at. We, we talked about this a few Sundays ago, but we have to understand that what's going on here is not that, that God is declaring his gospel to be some sort of squishy universalism, as if God doesn't care who you are or how you live or, or anything like that. That's not what it means to say that, that God shows no partiality. It doesn't mean that, that God has no standards. It doesn't mean that, that he doesn't care how you live or, or, or what you believe. Just yesterday, we were having officer training here at the church, and we reviewed the, the third question of our shorter catechism, which says, what is it that the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. 
God does care what we believe, and God does care how we live. And so to say that God shows no partiality is not to say that God is undiscerning or that he, or that he simply doesn't care, that he has no standards, but rather to say that God shows no partiality is to say that God has the same standards for everyone. God's standard is the same regardless of who you are or where you come from. Here, of course, Peter is focusing on the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And Peter is driving home the point. He says, listen, the standard of of God's standard for mankind is not different for Jews than it is for Gentiles. God has the same standard. Whether you are Jewish or whether you are a Gentile, you approach God in the same way. You approach God on the same footing. But of course, this this principle could be applied more broadly. It's not just the distinction between Jews and and Gentiles that is set aside, but it is all such distinctions that that human beings might make, all cultural distinctions that, that we might make between one another. God does not show partiality. He he does not play favorites. His, His standards for mankind are the same regardless of who you are or where you are from. And it's important for us to, to recognize that, that this is not a change in God's relationship to mankind. This was actually true in the Old Testament. <coughs> we, we sometimes miss it because there is an obvious distinction between Jews and, and Gentiles in the Old Testament, is there not? Uh, there, there, there's an obvious distinction there. And that we, we see that distinction referred to in any number of ways. But even, even in the laws that separate Jews from, from Gentiles, what are we told again and again and again? We are told that there's to be the same law for the Jew as there is for the, the Gentile. The, the, the Gentiles, those foreigners who, who are living amongst the people of God, they can participate in the sacrifices as long as they do it in the way that God requires and the, the laws that, that govern the civil life of the, the people of God, they, they apply equally to the foreigners who live among them. And so there, there is, yes, a distinction in the Old Testament between Jews and Gentiles, but it is not God's partiality, but rather it is one standard set down for all. We, we see this throughout the Old Testament, that, that even in the Old Testament, God shows no partiality. And so it's not that, that God's character has changed, that, that before he was a God who played favorites and, and now he is going to treat everyone equally. That's not what's going on here. But rather, the, the change is in the standard. The change is in the rule. The, the change is in what God requires of man. In the Old Testament, God required people to submit to Torah and specifically to his his ceremonial laws. There were laws about what food you could and and could not eat. There were laws about what you could and could not do on certain days. There were laws about the the clothes that you could wear. There were laws about circumcision and, and what you had to do with your body. And these were laws that people had to submit to in order to maintain fellowship with the God of Israel, in order to maintain fellowship with Yahweh, the one true and living God. This was the standard whether you were a Jew or a Gentile. It was through Torah that, that you maintained your peace with God. But as we saw last Sunday, those ceremonial laws, Those ceremonial laws were were something like training wheels. 
They were training wheels that, that taught the, the people about uh, what it meant, meant to be in relationship with a holy God and, and, and the importance of, of their own holiness if they were to maintain that relationship. And they, the fact that that holiness was to be defined by God himself and not whatever they thought was appropriate. And so those, those laws, those ceremonies, the, the, the ceremonial law that God had given to his people was a guardian, Paul says, a, a tutor to bring them into the future. Specifically, to bring them to Christ. And so now, with the coming of Christ, and particularly with his death and resurrection, those training wheels were no longer needed, and they were now being set aside. It's not that they were never any good. It's not that God had changed his mind and decided, well, maybe those food laws weren't really such a good idea after all. But rather he's saying those laws have now been fulfilled. They've they've served their purpose and therefore they are no longer binding because the sum and substance of what they were always pointing to is now here in the person of my son. But what we have to understand is that the, the principle of impartiality hasn't changed. God has always been Impartial. There's always been one way that you come to him. There's always been one way that you enter into relationship with him. There's always been one way that you maintain that peace. And so that then leads us to our next question. If God is impartial, and if he has the same standard for everyone, what now is that standard? Well, this is exactly where, where Peter is going. We, we notice that he begins to answer that question in verse 35. Notice what Peter says. He says, In every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. So what is the the standard that this impartial God requires of of mankind, regardless of of whether they are Jew or Gentile, regardless of, of, of cultural distinctions? What is this one standard that this impartial God requires? What he requires is that we fear him and do what is right. It is the one who fears him and does what is right that is acceptable to him. This is God's standard for, for every nation, from, for anyone, from any nation, Jew or Gentile alike. They must fear him and they must do what is right. Now I wonder how you hear that. I, I wonder how you respond to, to that way of, of putting God's standard. In my experience, some contemporary Christians, those especially who, who hold steadfastly to the, uh, the, to the doctrines of grace, those who hold steadfastly to the idea that, that salvation is by grace through faith apart from works of law, even as we have confessed here this morning, those who hold steadfastly to, this doc, to these doctrines of grace, these, these doctrines taught so clearly by, by Paul. We, we've seen them in Philippians. We've see, we see them in Romans. We see them in Galatians. We see them in Ephesians. We see them throughout the New Testament. Those who hold to these doctrines of grace are sometimes troubled by Peter's expression here. They wonder how the two fit together. How does salvation by grace alone fit together with the idea that, that the one who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him? To modern ears, fearing God and doing what is right can sound like works. And it's not supposed to be about works. It's supposed to be about faith. And so we have to ask, how does this, how does, how does what Peter here proclaims to Cornelius, how does it 
fit together with this gospel of grace that we believe and, and hold to because we find it so dear. But we have to understand that, that fear, the fear of God and faith, are not opposed to one another. In fact, to, to fear God is to have faith. Faith expresses itself in the fear of the Lord. Think about what the fear of the Lord is. The, the fear of the Lord is acknowledging God as God. It is having a right and proper respect for Him. It is honoring Him as who He is. And that's exactly what it means to believe in God. To believe in God is to believe He is who He has revealed Himself to be. It is to, it is to take Him at His word that, that He is the maker of heaven and earth. That He is the one who has made us and has made us for Himself. And therefore, He is the one to whom we must give account for our lives. This is what it means to, to fear the Lord, to, to believe that He is God, that He is our Maker, that He is our rightful Lord and King, that He is the one to whom we must give account. To fear the Lord is to believe that death, both, both physical and spiritual, is not only the natural consequence, but is the just punishment of our rebellion of our refusal to, to bow the knee to him and to confess him as our Lord. And so you see that, that the fear of the Lord is merely an expression of faith. To, to fear the Lord is to believe in him. It is to believe that he is who he has revealed himself to be. And so fearing God and believing in God are not opposed to one another. Even, uh, they're not even really distinct from one another. They're simply two ways of talking about the same thing. Talking about honoring God as God. Of standing in relationship to Him as He is and as we are. This is what it means to believe in God. And this is what it means to fear the Lord. And so fear and faith are not opposed to each other, and, and neither is faith and doing what is right. Again, here we, we can sometimes think that, that doing what is right sounds an awful lot like works, and, and isn't faith supposed to be opposed to works? But it's not. <laughs> it's not. Faith, obedience is simply the, the embodiment of faith. It's what faith looks like when you have a body and, and live in time. When, when you walk in the footsteps of, of faith, you are walking in obedience. You are doing what God requires. If you honor God as God, if you fear him as the Lord, then you will walk in obedience to him. Not perfectly, because we are weak sinners. But when we sin, we repent and we turn back to him. We acknowledge those sins and we, we turn back to him with the, the full purpose of an, uh, an endeavor after new obedience. That's what it means to, to fear the Lord. You cannot fear the Lord and continue to sin deliberately. You cannot fear the Lord and, and continue to, to uh, hold on to the right to, to do what is right in your own eyes. The one who fears the Lord seeks to walk in obedience to Him, seeks to do what is right. And that means that when you fail to do what is right, when you fall short of His glory, when you miss the mark, when you sin against Him, you repent, and you turn back to him for his mercy and for his grace. And so we recognize that, that obedience and faith cannot be set against one another any more than the fear of the Lord and faith can be set against one another. 
Faith is opposed to, to works in one sense. Faith is opposed to any endeavor to earn God's salvation. Any attempt to work for God so that he might be in your debt. You cannot place God in your debt. You, you cannot work for him so that he might be required to, to pay you. Faith is opposed to seeking to earn or, or merit God's salvation or his, his blessing. But faith is not opposed to obedience. On the contrary, obedience is the expression of faith. Obedience is the outworking of faith. The faith that, that believes in God is a faith that necessarily shapes your life because if it doesn't shape your life, it's not faith. If it doesn't shape your life, it is merely a, a counterfeit, as James says. And so when Peter says that anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him, he is preaching the New Testament gospel. He's preaching the same gospel that Paul proclaims so clearly in his letters. He is, he is preaching the gospel of salvation alone, uh, by grace alone, through, through faith alone, apart from works of the law. And that is God's standard. That is what God requires of us. If you would approach God, you can come to God only under the terms of this gospel. If you seek to come to him any other way, if you, if you rely on works of the law, Paul says in Galatians, then you will bring yourself under his curse because you cannot relate to God by terms of the law. If you rely on the law, you will bring the curses of the law upon your head because the only way to avoid those curses is to abide by all things written in the book of the law, and you can't do that. But if you will fear him, and if you will do what is right, seeking to obey him with your whole heart and then, and then seeking his mercy when you fail, turning to him in repentance, then you will be reconciled to God, this is God's standard. And it is, it is this expression of the standard that, that Paul, Peter is emphasizing. This is, the, this is the change that has taken place. As I said in the Old Testament, doing what is right, the, the obedience of faith, it looked like obedience to the ceremonial laws. It looked like submitting to, to these laws, these food laws and these, these uh, clothing laws and these, uh, these other laws that, that God had given in the Old Testament. That's what, that's what doing what is right, that's what faith looked like. That's what faith did in the Old Testament. But now it looks different. No longer does faith express itself by submission to the Old Testament laws, but rather now faith expresses itself by submission to God's Son. Our, our rightful King and Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is really the third thing that, that Peter begins to emphasize here. Submitting to God's ceremonial laws is no longer the expression of faith, but rather now submission to the Son is how faith expresses itself. Look again at what Peter says, beginning in verse 36. He says, As for the word that was sent to Israel preaching good news of peace, through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That's the point. That's the point that, that Peter is, is driving home. He's saying, listen, the, the ceremonial laws were provisional. The ceremonial laws were a guardian. They were, they were the training wheels that got us here. But now that Christ has come, 
Faith expresses itself in obedience to the Son. Faith expresses itself by receiving and resting upon Him alone for your salvation. Doing what is right is defined by Jesus, not the Old Testament laws that pointed us to Him. Peace with God is no longer found through, through submission to circumcision or, or submission to, to, to dietary restrictions or, or uh, to a specific calendar. Those things have been fulfilled. Those things have been set aside. Now doing what is right is defined by submission to Jesus. And, and Peter recognizes that that's a big claim. Uh, that's a claim that, that any first century Jew is going gonna, is gonna to wrestle with. That's a claim that any first century Jew is going to struggle to receive. You, you can imagine if, if someone today began uh, saying, well, you know what, God doesn't actually care how you express your sexuality anymore. You, you can express it any way you want. Now, to be clear, that's, that's not what God says. But, but I want to suggest to you that it was just as shocking to first century Jews to hear that, to hear the claim that God no longer cares what you eat, as it would be for us to hear God say, well, God no longer cares what you do with your sexuality. Like that, that these were God's laws. And, and Peter is here claiming that, that those things have now been set aside. And so if someone claimed that, we would say, no, that's not what God says. <laughs> that, that's not what God says. We, we would we require... We would argue, we would, we would want demonstrations, we would want proof, and that's exactly what, what Peter understands, and it's exactly what, what Peter, Peter begins to give them. Notice what he says. He says, listen, I understand that you're only going to accept this claim if it, is, if it is supported by irrefutable proof. So let me point you to Jesus, and let me point you to the proof that is in his life. First, Peter says that God publicly and, and profoundly validated Jesus before his crucifixion during the three years of his public ministry. Notice what he says. He says, you yourselves know. This is, this is still within in memory. They, they know the truth. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism of John. You, you know what happened during Jesus' public ministry. You know how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power so that he went about doing good. He, 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 was, he did miracles. He healed the lame. He, he, he healed the blind. He, he healed those who were mute. And not only did he, did he do good, but he also uh, healed those who were oppressed by demons. He commanded evil spirits and they, and they released people whom they had in bondage. Here is Jesus and the power of the Spirit going about doing good, casting out demons, for God was with him. Peter says, you know what happens. You know how God was with this Jesus during his public ministry. He says, we are, we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. We, we know we know the stories. We, we know the power with which he worked. We know the, the power with which he spoke. God publicly and profoundly validated Jesus during his ministry before his crucifixion. But it didn't stop there. Because the same God who, who profoundly validated Jesus during his earthly ministry before his crucifixion also publicly validated him after his crucifixion. 
They put him to death, Peter says, by hanging him on a tree. And and don't miss the significance of that. Why did they hang him on a tree? They they were trying to invalidate him. They were trying to demonstrate that, that he was not the Son of God, that he was not the Messiah. For the one who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. And so they hung him on a tree in order to invalidate him, but God raised him up on the third day. On the third day, God declared him to be his son with power to save all who call upon his name. And he didn't do this in a corner, as Paul will later say, but he did it publicly. He made him to appear, not to all people admittedly. Cornelius had not seen the the resurrected Lord, but he had made him to appear to those whom he had chosen to be his witnesses, those who had been with him during his earthly ministry, and those who could now testify that he is, in fact, the risen Lord. And as the risen Lord, he is the one whom God has appointed to be the judge. This is Peter's argument. He, he's pointing to, to uh, Jesus' spirit-empowered uh, ministry and his, his spirit-empowered resurrection. And he is saying, listen, God was with him. And he is now the one whom God has appointed to be the judge. In other words, uh, the pers- a person will now be judged by their relationship with Jesus. Submission to Jesus, Peter says, is now the defining characteristic of what is right. Submission to Jesus as Lord is now the defining expression of a true and proper fear of God. If you fear the Lord, if you honor him as God, then you will honor his son. And if you will honor his son, then you will be acceptable to him. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will never be put to shame. If you call upon the name of the Lord, then you will have in him eternal life. This is the message. This is the message that that God gives to Peter to to proclaim to Cornelius. This is the message that that God uh, orchestrates this whole scene to to begin proclaiming to the ends of the earth. The one who fears the Lord by honoring my son, that one is acceptable to me, whether he be Jew or Gentile. That one is my child. This is the message. This is the gospel. It's the message in the gospel that that Peter was to take to the ends of the earth, and it's the the message in in the gospel that we need to hear this morning. I doubt there's anyone here this morning who believes that they must keep the Old Testament ceremonial law in order to be acceptable to God. That that ship has sailed. I I don't think there's anyone here this morning who thinks, well, you know, I I really need to be circumcised, or I really need to eat kosher, or I really need to make sure that I'm not uh, wearing clothes of of mixed fabric, or or I need to keep a certain calendar. We we don't follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws anymore. We don't believe that that we are right with God because we, we submit to those laws. But I know, I know that there are some here this morning, maybe many here this morning, who have struggled or even are struggling right now to believe that they could ever be acceptable to God. The reasons are different 
your reasons for, for struggling to believe that God could accept you are, are personal. They're, they're your reasons. But you know what it is to struggle. You know what it is to doubt that God could ever accept you. And if that is where you find yourself this morning, if you've ever been there, if you're, if you're there right now, if you're, if you're struggling to believe that God could ever accept you, then you need to hear again Peter's message. God sent Peter to Cornelius to proclaim to him that everyone who believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. God shows no partiality. Anyone, anyone who fears him from, from any nation, from any culture, from, from any tongue, from any race, anyone who fears him and does what is right by receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ, anyone who fears him is acceptable to him. If you will repent and, and turn to God in faith, if, if you will bow to the risen Son as Lord of all and rest upon him alone for your salvation, then you will be forgiven and you will be accepted by him. The one who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. This is the gospel. And it's because this gospel is offered without partiality to whosoever believes that we call it good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness we thank you for your grace. And we thank you, Father, that you have made a way for sinners to be reconciled to you. And that that way is open to whosoever will believe. Father, we gather here this morning as those who are Gentiles, as those who, who desperately need your grace. Thank you, Father, that that grace is available to us in the name of Jesus. It's in his name and for his name's sake that we pray. Amen.